Morning. I hope you will bear with me today. I have a little bit of a chest and a head issue going on. And where in the world is everybody? Everybody decided today to be vacation Sunday. So hey, good. Me, you, and the tree will study together. So if you would uh, pray with me and uh, we'll jump after uh, Genesis 6 one day. Father, we pray now in Jesus' name that you will help us, that you will cause your word to be a lamp for our feet and light for our path. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do your work of causing us uh, to walk into the truth or be reminded of everything you've said and you would truly lead us into truth. So we pray now for your help. Uh, God, I pray that you'd help me to uh, be clear and pray, Father, that in spite of all the stuff in my head and my chest, that you'll help me to be faithful and uh, and to be clear. So, Lord, we need your help now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 6, 1 to 8, we're talking about expanding corruption. And at the same time, we're talking about God's good, sovereign grace. As we stay through the book of Genesis, there continues to be this repeated truth in this theme that we see in Romans 5.20. Where we learned that the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, right? Grace abounded or increased all the more. So we see very clearly all the way up through Genesis 5, and as we're going to see today in Genesis 6, 1 through 8, that as sin increases, this battle, this war against two kingdoms, and remember, they're not equal kingdoms, They're not equal kingdoms. There's one kingdom that sits and reigns and rules eternally, and that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But in the rebellion in the garden, Satan launched a counter kingdom to seek to repel the good things of God. And we're going to see these kingdoms clash all the way through Scripture. But we're going to learn very quickly that where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And so remember the audience. Remember the audience. Moses is speaking to a people who've left Exodus and their captivity to slavery. And they're going to be entering a land that is filled with cult prostitution. And what happens in these demonic religious practices, people give their daughters to the priests of these religions to serve in a role of prostitution with the hope that perhaps they will breed with either a deity or this priest who is thought to be a deity, thus producing what are called demigods. And you're going to see this played out uh, in Samuel where Eli's sons are participating in this. And you're going to see this problem manifest itself in the people of Israel as they enter this land. And Moses wants his people to understand and know this is where you're going. And what you need to know is the source. You need to know the reason. And you need to know how we're going to combat this. This demonic activity had its source before the flood and the demonic assault on what is good in order to destroy it and seek to counter God's kingdom. And Moses wants his people to know the source and the consequences. And our purpose is no different. Our purpose isn't different than Moses' purpose. As a matter of fact, it has to be the purpose of Moses. That's why it was written. Is that our purpose was would be that we would see and we would know the source of this conflict against what God created as good. And it's intended destruction of what is good. So that we will know how to counteract and how to push back against it. So we're going to start. I'm just going to read the passage. And then we're going to, we're going to pull out some expositional, some truths from the text. And then we're going to try to make some application of them. And I just want to say this before we launch into verse 1 to 8. Every commentator, every scholar agrees this is the most difficult passage perhaps in the whole Bible 
Definitely in the Old Testament. So I, I was being sick. I really wanted to pass this passage off. I was like, oof, I don't feel too good. Pastor Josh, once you preach this one this week. But that's not appropriate. So Genesis 6, 1 to 8, most difficult passage in the Bible. Let's read it. Um, and so if you have your Bible, you can read silently. Don't read out loud. That'd be really weird. And I'm going to read it. You read along silently. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not always abide with man. Or, I'm sorry, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So our first point is going to come from verse 1 to 3, perhaps the most difficult uh, part of this passage, and here's the point, and then I'm going to walk you into how we come to this conclusion. Marriages and their children are demonized in lusty passion rather than in godliness. Marriages and their children are demonized in lusty passion rather than in godliness. Now, I want to throw this little note on you here. As we study this difficult passage, we need to remember if we believe, and we do, as Christians, if we believe that God the Creator can unite Himself to human nature in the virgin's womb, this account is not intrinsically beyond belief. One of the problems we, we bring to the text as 21st century Christians is most of us have been educated, not intentionally, but because it's the context in which we live into a naturalistic worldview in which we look at supernatural things and we instantly begin to doubt the nature of the supernatural because it's not empirical or or there's no way to empirically deal with it. Does that make sense? And so what we have to remember is that is a worldview that is opposite of anything that the Bible teaches us. It is a worldview opposite of the truth, right? Because even, even we see in the world today that people recognize that naturalism has offered nothing of benefit to mankind. And so you have this growth in spirituality. It's not biblical spirituality, but it's growth in spirituality. The belief in demons, the belief in ancestors, the belief in ghosts, and all this supernatural stuff. Because man has recognized that a natural worldview is devoid of anything meaningful at the end of the day. And so as Christians, we come to the text with a supernatural worldview. That everything we see, there's more to it than meets the eye. We believe that, and that, that should be a bedrock foundational component to how we view the world. And so if we believe that God the Creator can unite Himself to human nature in the virgin's womb, this passage is not difficult for us. Does that make sense? And so we're to come at it with that worldview. The question for us in this passage here, particularly verse 1 to 3, is who are the sons of God? That's the difficult question. We've got some options, okay? And I'm going to tell you where we're going to land, all right? Now, you feel free to land where you think you ought to land, but I'm going to tell you where we are going to land this morning, and you feel free to disagree with me later, but let's do that in private, okay? So here are the options, and there are four. Number one, 
We ask the question, who are the sons of God? The first option is that they are the sons of Seth. Right? Remember, Seth is the godly line. And as we saw in chapter 5, these sons began to walk with the Lord. And so these sons of God are thought to be the sons of Seth. And they married the daughters of Cain. That's option number one. Option number two is the sons of God are just angels. They're flat out angels taking on human form. Three, they're human judges or rulers. Alright? Our fourth option, and this is the option we're going to land on today. Alright? Again, you feel free to disagree. There's plenty of room for disagreement here. But this is one that makes most sense. And I'm going to make that argument for you this morning. That the sons of God are demonized men... Who have fully given in to the satanic counter kingdom and are agents of Satan to destroy goodness and holiness in mankind and to hinder the creation mandate. Now the reason we fall on this here is several reasons. Number one, every place you see this language in the Bible, sons of God, it refers to in particularly angelic hosts. Job 1.6. Job 2.1. Job 38, 6 to 7, Daniel 3, 25. All of these passages where you see this language used begin to refer or they refer to the angelic. Okay? So why not option two? These are just angels. Well, the Bible teaches us some things about fallen angels or demons. We learn in Luke chapter 20, verse 34 to 36, that fallen angels are sexless and they don't marry. They are asexual. We learn that demons have a craving for human bodies. Mark 5, 11 to 13, Luke 8, 31 to 33, and particularly Luke 11, 24 to 26, when a demon goes out of a person, they pass through waterless places seeking a place to land, right? You remember this passage? Jesus taught on this. And I know this is weird for us because we're, again, we have a tendency to the naturalism. When we think supernatural things, we just don't, we don't want to pay attention to it. But the reality is this is a supernatural world. We deal with demons. We deal with the angelic. And often, particularly as Westerners, we write it off as something else other than demonic first. It's not always demonic, but many times it is, and we write it off as something else. And so Jesus taught us about this. He says, and, and, and they come back, and they find that place swept and put in order. They bring back seven more like them, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So we see that these fallen angels crave human bodies. We learn in Mark 9.18 and Luke 9.39 that fallen angels seek to destroy the work of God. Parents would bring their demonically oppressed children to Jesus and say, this demon seizes him and throws him into the fire and throws him into the water to drown him. So we see here some, some pieces to this that help us to understand that these fallen angelic hosts seek to destroy, use, and abuse the work of God. Therefore, I think the best option for us, and we're asking the question, who are the sons of God, is to understand them as demonized human beings who are under the influence and being used by the satanic counter-kingdom to destroy what God made as good and holy. Therefore, marriages, and then we're going to see their children are demonized in a lusty passion rather than in godliness. I want you to note something very important here in the language particularly of verse 2. These sons of God, they saw and they noticed that they were attractive and they took. 
Does that ring a bell of familiarity? It should. But if you go back to chapter 3, verse 6, you will notice something happens when Satan is having this conversation with Eve. What happened? She saw, and she noticed it was a delight to the eyes, and she took. This language is not accidental, it's intentional. Remember, Moses is writing this account for these people so they understand where they're going and how they're to counteract what they're about to experience. And he wants these people to understand, he wants us to understand, that the source is none other than the demonic. It is none other than the satanic counter-kingdom seeking to destroy what God has made good. Because these sons of God, these demonized humans, saw... They noticed they were attractive and they took at their leisure. In other words, this is the work of Satan to destroy the marriage union God himself created. Let's notice something else that's very important here. Verse 4. Violence is idolized. Violence is idolized. We're going to go back to verse 3 in just a moment. moment. Violence, though, is idolized. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Violence is idolized. I want you to note something important here. The crass nature of these demonized unions. The sons of God came into the daughters of men. You're going to notice this language throughout your Bible. And just because you read things in your Bible doesn't mean the Bible is prescribing them. It is describing often people's behavior. And this language, this crass language is repeated over and over again, particularly dealing with sinful unions throughout the Bible in this violent, over-sexualized use of the marriage union. And you notice the result of that? The Nephilim. Now, Nephilim is often dealt with in some translations as giants. I want you to note something very important here. The children of these demonic unions are not giants. The word Nephilim literally means fallen ones. Giants is a translation of a Greek translation of the Old Testament in connection with Numbers 13.33. And what's happening in Numbers 13.33 is these fearful spies are doing in Numbers 13.33 is they're using Moses' language applied to the descendants of Anak as justification for their refusal to go in and take the land. In other words, they look down and see, these are some pretty large people, and what they are is they're the Nephilim. They're, they're the fallen ones. These are these super powerful people that Moses has told us about over here in this account, and and, and we don't want to go down and fight them. We don't want any piece of them. And so when we come to this language, we need to be careful and not read on to giants when it is, in fact, fallen ones. Meaning the Nephilim are the children of these demonic unions in which violence is idolized. Because in chapter 6, verse 11 to 13, we're going to see that the earth is filled with violence from these people. In other words, these demonic unions are producing children who are just absolutely brutal and violent. And murder rules the day. Rage rules the day. And this violence is what makes them, as we see, heroes of the day. They're men of renown. In other words, who's, who's a man of renown? A violent man. A man who's demonized and in his crazed state makes things violent and brutal. 
And so we see that these marriages, these demonized unions are seeking to destroy what God has made holy. We see that violence is idolized. And then we see in verse 3 that God's going to put an end to the rebellion. But he's going to be patient. Notice verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. God is absolutely just. But God is absolutely gracious and good. God is going to punish sin. But he's going to be patient in his approach to it. And what is happening here is Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is beginning to prepare us for the work of the cross. In which God is going to punish sin. And he is going to do it in punishing Christ. And he is going to be patient for that message to fill the earth before he brings the final judgment. He's going to punish sin. But he's going to make a way of salvation through patience. Matter of fact, you get a taste for this a little bit further on in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 15. Where God is making this covenant with Abraham. And he tells Abraham that your people are going to be captive for 400 years. And the reason they're going to be captive is because, Abraham, I want to be patient with the Amorite. I want the Amorite to have an opportunity to repent. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you under bondage for 400 years. And I'm going to punish you for them that I might be patient with them. Again, preparing us for the work of the gospel. And so what God's doing here is He's saying, there's going to come a point at which I'm going to punish sin, but I'm going to be very patient with you. As a matter of fact, most interpret, matter of fact, most Jewish scholars interpret this 120 years as a period of grace before the flood, a kind of lull before the storm. And they understood that 120 years is an opportunity for repentance. God is being patient and He's being kind and giving 120 years for the people to repent. And what's He going to do in that 120 years? He's going to send them a preacher. It's going to send them a prophet. Who's that prophet? Yeah, Noah. And Noah, for this 120 years, is going to preach. He's going to preach repent, turn to the Lord. He is gracious and kind. But if you don't repent, there is coming judgment on your sin. So God's going to be patient. He's going to send them a preacher so that they might know and understand as a matter of fact, the New Testament tells us a little bit about this in 1 Peter three eighteen to 20 in which Jesus himself was making this proclamation through Noah. Where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Jesus was making his appeal through the prophet Noah. Hey, there's coming a day of judgment. Repent and believe. Get on the ark. I will cover you. So there's going to come an end to the rebellion. But God is going to be patient with those people. And let them know there's a way of escape. Then we see in verse 5 through 7. That sin has fully ruined image bearers. And God is grieved over mankind's corruption. Sin has fully ruined image bearers and God is grieved over mankind's corruption. What we need to remember, and we say this all the time, and we want to remind you, sin never works out for the people of God. Sin over-promises and under-delivers all the time. Sin always pillages what God has made good. Sin always destroys what God has made holy. Holy. 
And what we see here in verse 5 to 7 is it has ruined mankind. Listen to the passage. Listen to this stark language. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Trust your heart. Just follow your heart. Right? No! This tells me that mankind apart from God, his heart is evil. And it's not just evil sometimes, it's evil continually. And we read here that mankind has been ruined by sin. Sin has pillaged man, has pillaged his heart, pillaged his soul. And nothing is working out for the betterment because of sin. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that He made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. Sin has wrecked mankind, and we see God is grieved over it. God's not sitting up in heaven going, Oh, wow, this is great. No, we learn that God feels deep emotion. And we see that God was grieved over this. And He said, I'm going to blot man out that I've created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. We see that sin has pillaged man and it has grieved God to the heart. Notice the distinction in God seeing and man seeing. Man sees and lusts for sin. They saw, beautiful, took. God sees and is grieved. That's a good indication of where we are in our walk with the Lord. God sees and is grieved. When you see sin, are you grieved by sin? Or when you see sin, you go, oh boy, looking good. Right? So God sees and is grieved. Man in his sinful state sees and lusts for sin. And I want you to notice this. This is important. As you read this passage, it's not feeling real good, is it? This isn't a feel-good passage in your Bible. Things sound bad, but note this. History has never been better. And it has never been worse. We have a tendency to think about the good old days, right? Back in the day, people didn't do this stuff. Here's the reality, guys. History has never been better. In other words, in the past, people weren't holy. Just because you lived through the Great Depression doesn't mean everybody was holy and walking with Jesus. Right? They weren't. The problem, the difference is today you and I have social media. We have instant access to everything that happens in the world. We have the evening news. Most people don't even watch evening news anymore. You get your news on the Twitter or the Facebook or whatever, right? Or the, or the interwebs. But the reality is you have instant access. So we have a tendency to think because we see it instantly that it's somehow worse. It's not. And we learn from this passage that it has always been bad. And it is bad now. It's never been better, but it's never been worse. This is the state of the fallen heart. God told them in the garden, the day you eat, you will die. It's not like the day you eat, it'll get worse as time goes on. No, the day you eat, you will die. And when death entered humanity, it broke everything. So let's not live in a chronologically snobbery way in which it was better then, worse now, or or better now, worse then. It has always been bad because sin kills. It's the same rebellion. The world and mankind have been broken since the fall. And by God's common and restraining grace, He's kept humanity from going fully off the rails until He brings final judgment on the last day. 2 Timothy 3, 1-9 is not describing a worse time. 
But the nature of the difficulty of the time is the kingdom of darkness fights against the kingdom of light. In fact, Paul draws on the example in that passage of Janus and Jambres opposing Moses to illustrate that it will continue to be like that for us. In other words, it was bad for them. It's bad for us. Why? Because sin is bad. And sin has pillaged everything. But we come to the ray of light in the passage, verse 8. Remember we started by saying this theme where sin increases, grace increases all the more. There's some really good news in this passage. Notice verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Sovereign grace is a light in the darkness. When the boys were little, we used to have this little paddleboard book. And I say paddleboard because it was hard pressed. Like the pages didn't fold. It was just hard. You guys know what I'm talking about? And it was Noah and the ark. And have you ever noticed that all the baby stuff about Noah's ark... It's all pretty and neat. No bloated dead bodies floating in the water underneath the ark. You ever notice like it's all pretty. There's nothing about the ark and the flood that's pretty. Nothing. Judgment on sin. Death kills. Right? And this little book started out. You open it up and you pray, and you could press a button and it would talk to you. I thought this was the coolest thing ever. Until I pressed the button and here's what it said. And some of y'all may have had this book. God, who looked like Charlton Heston... A white beard and a robe. You press the button and God said, you are good, Noah. That's how the book started. God's grace to Noah predicated on Noah's goodness. And, the, and me being theologically astute, I refused to let the boys look at that book. We threw that one away. And here's why. Because the Bible doesn't teach us Noah was good. As a matter of fact, verse 9 comes after verse 8. Meaning, Noah's righteous behavior is built on verse 8. And what is verse 8? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because God's good, not Noah. You see, the reality of this situation is sovereign grace is light in the darkness. Because Noah's just like everybody else. Noah's not righteous. Noah also is demonized and harassed and he struggles. As a matter of fact, he's so broken later on, we're going to see exactly how broken he is. Noah's righteousness isn't built off of his own righteousness. Noah was made right because he found favor in God's eyes. In other words, God looked down and because God is good and God chose because God chose, doesn't tell us why, it's just that he did. Noah found favor. In other words, God showed favor to one. And because God showed favor, we're going to see in verse 9, Noah begins to act righteous. Listen, this is really good news for us. It's because God doesn't save people based on their innate goodness. He saves people based on His goodness. And God is good and God is gracious, not willing that any should perish, but they should receive life. And He looks down and He finds favor and He gives favor to Noah and He preserves Noah and He makes him righteous so that when we read verse 9 next week, we see Noah acting righteously because God took the initiative to be gracious to a sinful creature such as Noah. Because verse 5 applies to Noah. The intents of his thoughts and his heart is only evil continually too. Noah's favor with God is not based on his righteousness. Noah's righteousness comes in verse 9. Noah is the first object of God's grace 
before there is any righteous behavior. We read about this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. And so we have here in this little tiny end to this difficult section, this glimmer of light... That God's sovereign, gracious power toward His people is being put on display so that He might preserve a people for Himself. That He might save a people for Himself. Listen, dear Christian, if you're in Christ today, it's not because you generated faith to believe. It's not because you were good and you chose God before God knew what was going on. If you're in Christ, it's because God was good to you. And He caused the gospel to enter your ears at just the right time. And He took you from death to life. And He made you alive in Christ Jesus. By grace you've been saved. And He set you in the heavenly places with Christ based on His goodness, not your own. And so we get a glimpse at the end of this most difficult passage of the good sovereign grace of God as a light in the middle of this darkness. So what are we supposed to do with this passage, right? What are we supposed to, let me be very frank with you. The exposition of this passage wasn't really hard. Right? It's kind of, it is what it is. It kind of says what it says. The question when we come to passages like this is what the heck am I supposed to do with this? Right? Because it's no good anytime we stand up here and we offer the text to you to just have you walk away theologically fat. I now have more information. I learned a little something about the Nephilim. Now I know. Well, that's good, but if there's no outflow, knowledge does no good. So what do we do with this passage? What are we supposed to do with these things we've mined out of this text? Well, I'm going to offer you seven quick things. And I've got six minutes to do it in. Number one, I want you to recognize the demonic schemes to pervert... Sexuality and all that God has given for good in marriage. There's an awful lot made about this in our context as Satan's attack on the home. And it's true. What we find here is the satanic attack on the home started in the garden at the tree. And it continues in chapter 6 as these demonized men use violence and perversion as a means of simply procreating. And creating more violence through the earth. And we have to begin to recognize Satan's schemes to pervert what God has made good and destroy it. When we begin to recognize that, we will begin to be people who fight well against it. I think maybe for a lot of us, we just live ignorant of the fact that there is a constant onslaught of violent sexual behavior that gets propagated on on. A thousand different pieces of media and enters our eyes daily. And it's easy to become desensitized to it as though it's normative. And what we've got to begin to recognize is that this is a demonic scheme to pervert what God has made good. And many of our young men are, have fallen victim to this. And they think of the marriage union not in terms of the goodness and righteousness of a godly Proverbs 31 woman, but how they can satisfy their desires. We need to recognize that as demonic and fight against it. Number two, we need to recognize the source of the perversion as demonic. 
Recognize the source as demonic. Listen, we live in supernatural air. We live in a supernaturally charged environment. And we need to recognize that the enemy comes to absolutely scheme against us. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're not unaware of his schemes. Are you aware of his schemes? Do you know the schemes he uses to bring division and discord and distrust and a thousand other things on the people of God? Are you aware of those things? Because listen, if it's contrary to the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, it's coming from the enemy. We need to recognize the source of these things and begin to fight against them. Number three, we need to recognize the continual onslaught of violence and brutality and mankind's lust for it as demonic in nature. These fallen ones who were men of renown, known for their violence, that's not good. And unfortunately, in a lot of our context, manhood is defined as a man's ability to be violent. And listen, men, that is not what defines a man. And oftentimes we think in terms of manhood being grunting and shooting things and killing things. And And reality has nothing to do with manhood. Nothing to do with manhood. I tell my boys, manhood is rejecting passivity, leading courageously, accepting responsibility, and expecting God's reward for those things. And the reality is that violence and brutality, and if you notice the lust for that is more and more and more. It doesn't take you long on your Facebook feed to see some gang fight that somebody has posted and people have reposted. And it is easy to start watching those things and enjoy people dying or being absolutely brutalized at the hands of other people. Have you ever noticed that? You ever notice that it that makes its way onto the news? That's the kind of thing that sells news. Listen, the source of those things isn't good. The death of anything in created order was not made to be right. I'm even losing my desire to hunt. And I'm not telling you that's godly because I like hunting. But I'm even finding I don't like killing things anymore. I don't like to kill animals anymore. You know, that's weird for some of you guys. Like, I didn't know you hunted. Oh my gosh, I hate you. And then some of you guys are hunting, hunting, hunting. The reality is the death of anything was not part of created order. And it's not normal. Brutality toward people and toward God's creation isn't good. And we need to recognize the onslaught of violence and brutality as demonic in nature. I didn't say hunting's demonic. Don't hear that. Charlie said hunting's demonic. No, I did not. I'm telling you that death and brutality are demonic. And if we glorify it, we are playing into its source. Number four, recognize that man is captive to the curse apart from the gospel and naturally follows the way of his evil heart. That apart from Christ transforming our hearts, we're captive to an evil heart. That's why we need Christ to give us a new heart. Number five, we need to revel in and preach sovereign grace as God's solution to the evil heart. We need to revel in and preach sovereign grace as how God fixes an evil heart. Listen, when you're talking about the gospel in our town, please don't tell people to get right or be good enough. 
Let them know this has absolutely nothing to do with any choice you make or any volitional capacity on your own. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. But if you hear this message, God can take a dead heart and bring it to life. Tell them that. Be honest about it. Open your Bible. Preach this good news that God took sinful Noah and He gave him a new heart so that in verse 9 he could start doing right things. Tell people that. Be honest and preach and revel in the sovereign grace of God as a solution to man's evil heart. Because what God is doing, what God is going to do in the ark to judge sin and rescue His people is what Jesus is going to do to accomplish on the cross. This is why the New Testament draws this connection between the ark and the cross. It's because that thing floating on that water, carrying these people, protecting them from the wrath of God, is the grace of God, the sovereign goodness of God to bring judgment, but at the same time rescue those who will trust in Him. That's why Paul says we boast in the cross, because God is going to bring judgment, but those who find their boast in the cross and the covering of Jesus Christ escape and find the favor of God. And so we revel in and preach the sovereign grace of God as a solution to man's evil heart. Number six, as redeemed followers of Jesus. And I want you to hear this carefully. Push back graciously, yet aggressively against what spoils God's good order. Push back graciously, yet aggressively against what spoils God's good order. It's very easy to not push at all and just be passive. Well, God will set it right. Yes, He will. But He also sent a preacher, Noah, to let them know while He put His hands to building an ark. We're no different. Listen to me. I want you to hear this very carefully. The word preach in the New Testament is applied to every single believer. It's not the preacher's job to preach. It's every Christian's job to preach. What's your message? The gospel. The good news. And it's also your job to engage and to serve and to repair. As Noah preached the good grace of God to save those who turned to the Lord. And at the same time was building the vehicle by which God was going to rescue people. You and I have the same mandate. To graciously proclaim this message while aggressively pushing back against the things that are spoiling God's good order. Getting involved, doing something to push back on what's broken. It's not just enough to raise our families and isolate ourselves from sin and the curse. That does no good. We must be gracious but aggressively push back on the fall. This is where Christians become salt and light. Jesus said you don't take a light and hide it, do you? And if we isolate ourselves, we're hiding the light. And finally, how do we respond to this? As we always say, we worship. We worship. Because what we find in this passage is God was gracious to save. He brought judgment, and He was going to bring judgment, but He was gracious to save. Today, if you're in Christ, God has been gracious to save you. He's been good to you. He let you know. He sent a preacher with the message. He sent a prophet with the message. It entered your ears. It brought you to life. It rescued you. It saved you. And so therefore we come and we offer thanksgiving and praise to Him. So you join me in prayer and then we'll sing together. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you will cause us to make much of you. Lord, I thank you for your word that really, really, really is good news. That teaches us this good news. That really, really does show us that you are holy, but at the same time you are good and patient and kind.
It is a lamp for our feet and light for our path. So Lord, I pray that you will help us now. Help us to worship and respond in worship. Songs that we sing, but also as we walk out of this room, the lives that we live. Lord, I pray that you would use this time as we sing to you to do a work in our hearts to draw us closer to you, but also to unite us together. God, I pray that you would accomplish in that us being salt and light in our world. That we as a people who love each other and love each other well would be able to proclaim, but also with our hands and feet bring healing. We would speak the healing of the gospel and then we would work out the healing of the gospel in our cities. And Lord, we trust you for that now and ask you to do all of that work even in this little time we have together. We pray in Jesus' name.